1: Hello, hello. Welcome to Brook Talks America, where we discuss politics and culture from an unapologetically conservative perspective. I'm your host, Brooke says, conservative patriot, proud, deplorable, and columnist, which you can read on my website, Brooktalksamerica.com, and that's Brooke with an E, of course. Make sure you connect on the interwebs, all of the connections, Facebook, go to Brook Talks, uh, Find them on the Facebook on the uh, website. I'm here with my co-host Colonel Jim Warshuk, former Deputy Director for Intelligence at U.S. Central Command. He served on the White House National Security Council and currently serves as a Hillsborough County, Florida GOP Chairman. His articles are on AmericaOutloud.com, and he does have some on my site as well. So, from hot topics to history, you can be sure if it's happening in America, I will be talking about it. We have a different type of format today in honor of 9/11. We're in the 19th anniversary. Anniversary of 9-11, and the whole show will be about 9-11. It's very important that we never, ever, ever forget that incredibly horrific day, both to honor the people that were lost that day and, th- and in the wars since, and that we understand where we are as a nation now. I have as my first guest today the wonderful Captain Matt. You've heard him on this program for The Early Birds, um, and I am also on his show, Tuesdays at 5.30 a.m., he is a Vietnam veteran. He was he was a fire rescue captain and senior New York State fire training instructor assigned to the FDNY was in Manhattan on 9-11, and he's going to share some of his experiences on that day. He was obviously right in the thick of it, and you know what happened, what he went through, and and what he saw with the people that he was working with, and then really reflect on where we are now, because you really have to take note of both things. We're in a battle for the soul of the country now, and it's one of the reasons might be is because we have not learned some of the lessons that happened on that day. So welcome, Matt, Captain Matt, to the show.
2: Thank you very much, Mark. Happy to be here.
1: So what what was it like on that day? You know, everybody assumably looks at the video clips and they you know, the people that weren't there. Obviously, I remember exactly where I was when I found out. And it was stunned. I, cu- I literally couldn't leave. I wasn't working at the time. I couldn't leave my house for four days. I, I just watched the TV in absolute horror and shock. But, you know, I was in, in Florida at the time. So what was it like to be there in New York at the time?
2: Well, the fact of the matter is nobody expected to wind up in the position that we were in. Everybody went to work on the shift that's mor- that morning. I had a uh, uh, shift of probationary uh, firefighters. I had 42 of them, and I was the initial fire training uh, instructor in Brooklyn in the tower. We called it Tower 27, and uh, nobody expected to be where we wound up in at, and I was basically teaching a bunch of probies how to put out a fire, and uh, which is kind of interesting because they're reluctant to go into a darkened area where you can't see your hand in front of your face and all you mm. see is a ball of flame now what well you got to put the fire out so i was in the process of doing that and some big old gruff grabbed a hold of me by the back end of my turnout gear yanked me out the back end as hard as he could pull me he says pack up your gear we're going and i says well, what are you talking about he says look and i looked over my left shoulder across the deck and there was a world trade center number one burning black smoke uh, i said what happened he said plane hit it and you know my first thought wasn't a plane it was like a little plane. Right. Okay, that was my first thought. So as a result, uh, I'm thinking, well, okay, we're going to go over. It's going to be pretty simple. You know, we're going to be able to get in there. Like
1: someone missed their spot. Yeah, yeah. exactly.
2: Like some guy flying a private plane, <laughs> fell asleep behind a wheel or had an aircraft. That's what I was. say. We were all thinking that. And all of a sudden, we jump up. We get our gear loaded. It didn't take us five minutes or so to do that. Lights and sirens and down the road we went. Got up on the BQE where we had a pretty good sight of what was going on as far as New York. And um, uh, I saw the second plane hit the tower. I saw it come through from the left. I saw it disappear behind some buildings. And the next thing I saw was kaboom like that a big, huge explosion. And for some reason, I came on my radio, my little shoulder radio, which was up here. I had the microphone there, and I said, my God, we're at war. Well, it went over the radio. It went over the fire department radio. And at that time, we still had the towers of communications because we had all our communications towers on top of the World Trade Center. So we still had all of our communications intact. Well. Our assignment was to go to the BQE, to the, uh, down the BQE to the Manhattan Tunnel and stage, which we did. We had all the uh, available equipment from Brooklyn and Queens uh, and Staten Island was coming in that way rather than going into the city, which was all the tunnels were shut down. It was next to impossible to go anywhere. So... Um, we got there. We staged. We got out. We all got together. We, we said a prayer. We all got on our hands and knees, said a prayer. We had a couple of chaplains that were, that were there because we had no idea if that was going to be our last hurrah or not. We had no idea. Or if
1: there was something else coming.
2: Nobody knew. Right. And <clears throat> when we got the call to go through, we took our truck. They said, bring your truck. Bring all the heavy equipment you got. Bring all the men that you can bring with you. And we need all available uh, manpower uh, to come up. And we went in uh, through the Wall Street uh, uh, Center towards the World Trade Center, right straight down the street i forget the name of the street doesn't really matter at this point but we went as far as we could got as close as we could and we were still about a block away from tower number two tower one one was up in front of us as we were getting out of the truck tower number one came down Mm. came down and we saw that but what we saw before we got close enough was the people jumping out of the building unbelievable i couldn't i i've i've been in combat i've seen things nothing prepares you for that nothing prepared you for that and and we knew we were in big trouble and when tower number 1 came down we knew we were in bigger trouble um, our adrenaline was going 6,000 miles an hour. I mean, I felt like I could have I felt like I could have grabbed somebody, and just ripped them in half. I mean, you yeah. had that kind of super, super thing in, in front of you. So we did everything we could from a from a training standpoint. We got up to our assembled area. We started to get all our, our gear together. And our assignment was to get in Tower Two. Now, Tower One was down. So that was a rescue process going on. But we were to get into Tower Two and do rescue, and get everybody out that we could. Because there were 25 to 30 people, 30,000 people there that morning at 9 o'clock in the morning. That was a normal morning. Now, I found out later that the Fire Department of New York, the Police Department, the EMS, and we had military people there, too, and I'm going to get into that in a minute, that they got 25,000 people out of the World Trade Center. 25,000 people. If they hadn't done that, it would have been a huge catastrophe. That's
1: years of training, too. I mean, that's like perpetual training you have to understand something yeah and we trained
2: for everything you can think of including plane crashes and stuff but not on the 87th floor of the world trade center Mm -hmm. Uh, we had guys who were going up there to try to get to the fire we did have a couple of crews that did make it up there we could hear people you know uh, units calling down uh, we need all available ambulances we we had all that going on so our main just was to concentrate on what we were given to do all my men got all our heavy equipment together started up the stairs Um, The elevators weren't working, obviously. And I don't know how long it was, but my guys were gone for it seemed like uh, forever. And all of a sudden I heard boom, 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 boom. And stuff started dropping around us. It was World Trade Center 2 was coming down. Mm -hmm. And I was right in the doorway walking in and I could see what was going to happen. And I ran back to my truck and I had a little bit of space. I had my air tank on so i couldn't really get all the way under the truck so what was exposed was my left foot and my left ankle and i got everything except for that under the truck and something came down and hit me in the the ankle and i just felt my ankle go like that and i went okay here we go so uh when we finally realized what had happened the building had fallen but it didn't fall directly on us and it didn't pancake us. It came down in such a way. It's like, have you ever seen like an Indian teepee, but there were gaps in there. Mm -hmm. And in those gaps, there were people that were there. Some of them were hurt. Some of them weren't hurt. Everybody was in shock, including me. Everybody was in shock because you just didn't know what was going to happen. And again, the only thing that saved me, saved my Lieutenant was the training we had because we, we stopped. We thought about what we were going to do. We said, okay, we're going to get out of this. Let's think about this for a minute. The air was thick. The dust, the sandblast, the debris was everywhere. The pictures I, are incredible. Well, I went like this because I couldn't see. It went across my face, and, and I had like a snowball in my hand mm-hmm. of that ash, and it wouldn't come off.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It wouldn't come off. It was like a big wad. So I went like this a couple of times and got it off. and
1: Like dryer lint.
2: I, yeah 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 like like a washer dryer yeah. so i uh I, I did that but uh i started to get up and uh i couldn't get up and i said well this isn't good so we started to realize we had other people around us and we had a total of 13 people in there in various conditions some were hurt not really bad but they were hurt Uh, We had some people that had been burned, some people that had broken bones, some people that had cuts and bruises and abrasions. And then, unfortunately, we had a couple of people that we couldn't do anything for that were dead. And one of them was a brother firefighter. And uh, we did what we could. Uh, I knew I had a radio that had a little button antenna about half an inch, an inch long. That little button antenna was all I had between me and the outside world. And we had no more radio communications. All we were hearing was 2751 to 2407, 20 truck eight to uh, command, whatever. That's all we heard going back and forth because we had no radios. The towers were all back on the ground now. So we had to rely on where we thought we were, where we started out to be at, and then try to reach for anything we could to get us up into the air because we had about 10 to 12 people. One little section I was in had about a 20-foot section, and it seemed like it took a day and a half to get it. But after things cleared off just a little bit, then we could see some light, some Mm. daylight up above us. So we knew that we could be if we could get up there, we knew we could get a radio call out. We could be seen. Well, unbeknownst to us, they were already doing rescues in the stairwells. And they had a ladder truck that came right over our position, laid flat, went into the fifth store uh, stairwell of tower number two. And people were going across to get people out, and we they heard us talking on the radio. My lieutenant was up there saying, we got people down here and held the radio up. And I said, man— take whatever you got take a pike pole yam it jam it up through there halligan bar whatever you can grab and he did and they saw us and it took it took three hours to get us out but the first thing they did when they were able to cut away to get the, the people out we got the we had two women with us we got them out we got the smaller people out then the bigger people came out as a whole got a little bit bigger for people to get out um my lieutenant wanted me to go out and he wanted to come out after me. i said no i'm the last one out last one out i says everybody's getting out and and that took care of that so basically that takes you through the first part of the evolution but what happened after that even astounded me because i knew it was hurt i didn't know how bad i knew i'd at least broken my ankle but my foot instead of being like that or like this was like that which meant i did something other than just break my ankle so I thought about it for a second. I said, yeah, this is going to hurt like hell. And I just took my foot and went oh, like that, no. snapped it back in. And I took what I had available to me. I wrapped my boot back up, wrapped it all up, got got out. And uh, I started to limp around a little bit because I really you couldn't walk. I mean, you were walking over steel and all that sort of stuff. Get down on the street and he said, Captain, Captain, is there anybody else down there? I said, no. I said, you OK? I said, yep, I'm OK. He said, OK, we've well, we got another assignment for you. So went off and never thought anything about it. Well, about. Two hours later, all of a sudden I collapsed in a pile because I had bled so much I'd lost enough blood. I was in shock. Mm. And that was that and that was took care of me. But after I got myself uh, fixed up again to the point to where they said, OK, we're going to get you out of here because we need to we need to bed for other people who are worse than you. are." I said, great. They wanted to put me in a wheelchair. I, says, nope. I said, nope. So give me a pair of crutches. I got this cast on this great big cast. I said, give me a pair of crutches. I'm going back to the World Trade Center. So I spent two more days there before they they threw me out of there.
1: I bet. They I said bet. you got to go home. I bet.
2: My wife says you got to come home. I need <laughs> you here. So.
1: Well, you were alive. You made it out, and you helped other people make it out. That's we a-
2: we did, and I owe it all to the crew. There was not about me. There was no. Yeah. And here's the thing about the fire service: you have to understand something. It's never about I. It's never about me. It's never about my. It's about we. We are a team. We do things together. And if I got to take a hammer and drill that into the heads of some of these young people that are out there that want to be cowboys and Indians, that's not the way we do it. It's a we thing. And you can ask my friend Colonel Jim about that. It's a we thing. No,
1: absolutely. And you mentioned that the next generation, I want to talk about this, you know, a little bit is watching the, you know, watching the shows and watching the recap and really it's it's stunning to think about even 19 years later is the what we're going through now with the, the push towards socialism, the push towards really which is communism. OK, but they have no idea. You know, they don't have a, a lot of people that were arrested in New York that are protesters are like really wealthy kids of really wealthy people. They have no idea what service and sacrifice for others. It's not even just I mean, it is it is what happened on those days. I'm going to be talking with other people about the, the subsequent wars, the, you know, the suicides and, you know, canines that were there uh, so much in service and sacrifice. We were a unified country. We understood that those people that were in law enforcement and firefighters that are now being abused and and disregarded now walked into the building so that other people could walk out they have they don't have a concept of that and i think it's very we absolutely have this last kind of shot to make them understand that this country cannot go forward without understanding the service and sacrifice of people like you and people like jim and all of the people that were there that day and that have you know that serve every day so that we can be safe and free to to crit you know one of the process is to criticize your government we're free to be able to do that because of the service and sacrifice of other people including the families of the fallen you know they all serve so that we can do what we want and be free in america and they're just so willing to throw it away like it's nothing
2: i think one of the things we should have to do with this generation that's out there on the streets right now antifa black lives matter and all that stuff is when we arrest them and i do mean arrest send them, them over and when we well not send them over, no. We need to take them into the hospitals, into the ERs. We need to take them to the museums. We need to take them to Ground Zero. We need to let them see that museum. There's a fire museum here uh, in Tampa. There's McDill. They've got the Centcom uh, museum over there. We need to take these people. We need to lead them through there, even if it's in a chain gang with balls in a chain, mm-hmm. and and explain to them why those are there and what it is that's going on, and repatriate their minds to the understanding that we all had. Um, on September the twelfth, at twelve oh one in the afternoon, when you couldn't buy an American flag anywhere exactly. in the United States, you could not buy an American yes. flag.
1: Exactly. And you know, I think about something there. After the Holocaust, they said never, never again. Right? After nine eleven, they were like never again, and here we are. So it's very, you know. Again, I wanted the whole. I want to dedicate the whole show. Everything from the music to the guests, everything is about nine eleven because our country is on the line, and that showed us that. Freedom is something you always have to fight for. It's it's an eternal battle. Uh, Reagan talked about that. It's not passed down in the bloodstream. You must always fight and serve and sacrifice for it. Matt, as always, I love being on your show. I'm so glad I finally got to have you on my show for this special edition of the 9-11 show, Brook Talks America. Thank you for your service, and thank you for being on.
2: And thank you for honoring me to, with us being able to talk to the people.
1: Absolutely. And you're listening to Brooke Talks America. This is I'm your host, Brooke Says, here with Colonel Jim and here with Captain. And Matt, and you're listening to us on AM 860, The Answer on Salem Media Group, and we will be right back.
0: More Brook Talks America, coming up.
1: And I'm proud to be an American, where at
0: least I know I'm free. And I won't forget the men who died, who gave that right to me. And I gladly stand up next to you and defend her still today. Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA.
3: Hey, Uncle Sam, put your name at the top of his list and a statue Welcome back to Brooke Talks America with Brooke Says. Check out the blog
0: at BrooktalksAmerica.com. Here's Brooke says.
1: Hello, hello. Welcome back to Brooke Talks America. I'm your host, Brooke Says. We're here on Salem Media Group. And I am here today uh, now with Colonel Jim. You know, as I mentioned earlier, t- after talking with Matt, I wanted to have this be a little bit of a different forum, a uh, format, you know, to honor 9-11. And Matt talked about what it was like in New York City. And thankfully, even though it was originally going to be canceled, the lighting of the, uh, the Twin Tower you know, Ground Zero, they actually did it and they, they did the readings. It was a little bit different, but at least people were down there in New York City. It was very important and very good, for, I think, for the country to have that, you know. But I wanted to talk with, um, so Matt was in New York City at the time and Colonel Jim was in D.C. at the Pentagon at the time that the, uh, you know, that the Pentagon was hit. So I wanted to him, for him to share his experience on what that was like uh, going forward.
3: Well, I wanted to give a little perspective of what it was like to be in the Pentagon, and of course, it was a Tuesday morning, and we were looking at it as if it was just any other regular Tuesday morning. And the office where I worked in, so people understand, was on the outer E ring, on the north side of the building. And the Pentagon subsequently was attacked on the south side of the building. And we went to work that morning. We always got in there about five thirty, six o'clock, and we're going through our normal reti- routines. With regard to our office, I worked for um, the joint staff, and we were getting ready for our morning briefings to our general staff. Treating it like any other day, we went we went to our meetings, which were at 7 o'clock, finished up, and came back to the office. And normally what we did when was uh, discuss some of the things that we were going to be working on that day. And uh, suddenly we got a phone call from one of my colleagues' wife who said, turn on the news you need to see what's going on something's happened in new york a plane hit the world trade center and we quick turned on the tv in our office and we watched what was going on what the first plane hit the world trade center and as we watched you know we're discussing well what was likely to happen i grew up in southwest connecticut on a clear day you could see across the long island sound and see the world trade centers and one of my colleagues bob wheeler um who worked for me lived on Long Island. or grew up on Long Island. He says, "Yeah, sooner or later a plane was going to hit the, one of the towers." As you know, it, it happened before, many years before, when a plane struck the Empire State Building. So we were watching, and then all of a sudden, we watched the second plane hit the building. And when we looked at each other and saying, "Okay, this isn't an accident. This is real. This is obviously some form of terrorism." And um, you know, we watched, and as we listened to hear what, what, what was being said. I made a comment to um, my boss who had walked into the room and I said, you know, we're next. This is serious. And uh, a little Well, bit, so
1: that was the automatic thought?
3: That was the automatic thought because for, the, for two planes to, uh, you know, near simultaneously hit the World Trade Center, and these are airliners, these aren't little small planes, we realized something was coordinated there. There was something going on. And we just had this. This I just had this gut feeling. I said, "This is terrorism." You know, is Washington D.C. next? Is it? Is something else going to happen? And a uh, short time later, and we were watching Fox News. I'll I'll, I'll say that. And um, the first thing we heard was somebody had re- had ju- had jumped in. And one of the one of the reporters says, "We're hearing st- in reports that a, an explosion was was occurred at the Pentagon." And where we were in the Pentagon, you know, we didn't hear anything, nothing, no sound, no vibration, no anything. Of course, the Pentagon, when they designed the Pentagon, I have to say this, they designed it specifically uh, for this type of thing. It was built during World War II, and it was designed so if a if a bomb was dropped on the Pentagon, you would have had to drop it on about 25 sections of the Pentagon or more, because that's the way the Pentagon was designed so that there, everything was compartmented. And uh, And it's a
1: massive. It's
3: a massive building. Twenty five thousand people work in the Pentagon every day. And then uh, we started hearing commotion in the hallway and, you know, we opened the, the door to see what's going on. Massive people running out because that was one of the main exits. Uh, in our part of the pentagon and then finally the fire alarms went on which came on and that meant we needed to evacuate we locked up everything went out and the way we headed out the building towards the um, south or north uh, river entrance we uh, started to uh, we got to the intersection where a number of corridors come together one which intersects with all the way through the center of the pentagon across what is called the courtyard and people were coming across. Uh, people burned. People bloodied. And and our first reaction was to go the other way. And and people were saying they need help. They need help. So we ran uh, in the opposite direction back into where everything was going on. And uh, a lot of people were laying out in the middle of the courtyard, um, badly burned, injured. And we needed to get them out of there because we could see the now we could see the flames coming up from the Pentagon on that end. And we started helping people out. I I helped three or four people get out that, at that point, brought them out to the to the north part of the Pentagon, out to the uh, the sidewalks, and and then down towards the the Potomac River, and you know went back in three times to help get people out. And finally, the the first responders, the fire department, and and other rescue teams came in, and they wouldn't let us go back, you know, for a fourth. Fourth or fifth time, and then we had a we had to um, link up with some of our other folks. We didn't have our cell phones because we couldn't bring them into the Pentagon, especially where the were area where we worked. Uh, so we were dependent on a few people who did have phones, and um, we were listening, trying to get reports what was going on. And I can remember one point they said, "There's another plane inbound," and of course that was um, Flight 93 that had already indicated that that was going to happen. Um, nothing nothing happened uh we finally got home that night about six o'clock and came back into work the next day early and uh this is a part most people don't realize is we a joint staff a joint task force was stood up to get ready to prepare for uh going to afghanistan and we were Part of the effort that did that, we, and
1: the reason it was Afghanistan wise because they already had intel. and because everything Because we had that Bin the Laden intel was, was Al
3: Qaeda and the Taliban, and of course, most people don't weren't paying attention to that. Um, the intel community, of course, had been paying attention to it, and the Pentagon had been paying attention to that. And they
1: had already hit the World Trade Center. And they had so. already
3: hit the World Trade Center in ninety, you know, the the day, you know the '93 too, and 93 so the intel was there and our mission first and foremost i was the chief of psychological operations for the joint staff which means i pretty much was in charge of all the military psyop that was was being put forth and you know on a regular basis doing a lot of other operations and we we came together to put together how we were going to do that because that was going to be one of the first aspects of going in as part of what we call preparation of the battlefield And so we started putting that plan together. And the other plan we were working with was how do we inform the American people who the Taliban are, who Al Qaeda is, because most Americans don't know who that was. So we were working closely with the White House. I met every morning, uh, sat down side by side with Tori Clark, who was the public affairs officer for the Pentagon. Those who remember back then, uh, she did the press. She was the Pentagon press secretary and worked with her to craft the message that went to the White House, that went to the State Department, worked closely with the diplomatic um, information folks at the at State Department to get the U.S. message out to the world and help prepare our um, foreign allies and, 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 and eventually created a coalition that they all worked together with us. And then we had to come up with parts of the plan that had to go into the invasion of Afghanistan um we had to do a lot of things like we had to prepare leaflets that were going to be dropped on the northern alliance so that they knew the u.s was going to be working with them and on their side we put together uh special radios one channel radios that could broadcast messages to the northern alliance so that they would know what was going on kind of like what we saw in world war ii where the oss did that with them so we had to prepare all Prep all that, and then October seventh was when the invasion was going to happen. Uh, we went with a with a small task force um, to Uzbekistan to a place called K2, which is a military base where the operation initially was out of. And I was one of the Pentagon Pentagon liaison officers working with with U.S. Central Command, which was leading that operation. Um, third group uh, general Mulholland was in charge those who have seen the movie 12 strong will recognize his um, the person who pay, who played him and with the horses
1: with the horses that was amazing
3: but we were we were putting in all kinds of information into Afghanistan uh, working with with the whole team that was going to go in I stayed there until um, about November 7th went back to the Pentagon And continued to work the operations there because we had to do lots of things to continue uh, the effort to uh, take down the Taliban and and hit al-Qaeda as hard as we could, those that were in Afghanistan. And we continued to do that. Uh, I did that for the next six months and then uh, ended up um, getting reassigned to lead the, the NATO effort. Um, from the standpoint of intelligence because NATO was going to go into Afghanistan to be part of the coalition and um, started to do multiple tours in Afghanistan, both with NATO and later on um, got reassigned again to U.S. Central Command and continued that operation with with CENTCOM um, throughout the rest of the war. So um, just to give people a perspective of – how versatile the u.s military is where you're operating in the pentagon you get hit you brush yourself off the next day you go to work and get ready to do these kind of operations that we do uh didn't miss a beat did the things that we needed to do and um you know that is is kind of a perspective of what most people don't really see and i wanted to to do that so that we can lead into our next guest who's going to be talking about their experience in that
1: well and you know as a as a military officer colonel you know we have a little bit under two minutes how do you you know when you think about 9-11 we're 19 years past and to see where the country is now i mean as you know mentioned 912 the country was a different country then we were for all intents and purposes unified i mean you know you always kind of have the people but we were unified we were together we there were Matt talked about it that you couldn't find an American flag and now I mean it's such an insult to me to think about where the country is now after such a horrific event like that that the way that they're talking about the people that went in so others could get out
3: exactly Brooke and here's here's the key thing there there is you know people working against that you know we watched where all the all the ceremonial aspects of 9-11 were going to be canceled in New York and uh, a group of folks continue to keep that effort going there there is a concerted effort to stop that degree of patriotism that we need to be a unified nation you know we it's not just 9-11 it's the 4th of july and it's pearl harbor day and, and all benghazi, these events by the way. and benghazi <laughs> which, which, happened which, we, which also happened we need to keep those those memories together and people need to be reminded of that because those are the things that we have to deal with and as a for to keep us as a strong nation we need that unity
1: Yes. Well, I want to thank you, Jim, for your service. Thank you for sharing your experience at the Pentagon. I want to have a comprehensive approach to understanding how that day affected so many different people. You are listening to Brooke Talks America. I'm your host, Brooke Says, here with Colonel Jim. And coming up will be Chris and Wendy Hager, uh, old star parents. And they will share their experience with their son, who they lost to the ensuing wars that happened as a result of 9-11. And we will be right back.
0: More Brooke Talks America coming up.
4: The silent majority in the United States today is completely useless and is now part of the problem's plaguing society. Hello, I'm Ron Edwards. On today's page from the Edwards Notebook, while beautiful cities like Seattle, Portland, and the greatest city in the world, New York City, Less than a year ago were attracting millions of tourists from around the United States and the world. Jobs were plentiful, and life seemed good and getting better. But there, those on the political left were lurking in their dark, hellish holes, waiting for the right time to begin their demonic mission of riotous destruction of our cities with no resistance from the police or the so-called silent majority of law-abiding gun owner citizens who have endured burned-out businesses, blocked intersections, murders, rapes of both adults and children. Yet the wimpus, Americanus apologeticus silent majority remains silent and unwilling to defend our republic from the BLM antifasoros barbarians who will not stop ruining America until America stops them. The so-called silent majority better silence the barbarians before the barbarians silence America permanently. I'm Ron Edwards. Check out theronedwards.com. Sponsored by the Tri-County Liberty Coalition. Some
0: say this country is just out looking for a fight. after nine brook talks america visit on facebook search brook talks and now your host brook says
1: hello hello welcome back to brook talks america i'm your host brook says we're here on salem media group am860 the answer and we have as our guest uh chris hager he has been active in local state and national politics for many years and in 2018 he served as the veteran coalition coordinator for the uh, ronda santos campaign The Hagers are a Gold Star family. His son, Staff Sergeant Joshua Hager, it was an Army Ranger. U.S. Army Ranger was killed in action on February 22nd, 2007 in Iraq. Uh, Josh is Chris's oldest son. Chris's son, Aaron, served 10 years in the U.S. Coast Guard after graduating from the University of Miami in 2005. And Carson is the youngest of the children. Um, Staff Sergeant Joshua Hager was a recipient of the bronze star and purple heart and as he was familiar he was familiar as saying as the rangers do then i heard the voice of the lord saying whom shall i send and who will go for us and i said here i am send me rangers lead the way um you know as as i talked with captain matt and colonel jim and i mentioned with you um you know i wanted to get a comprehensive perspective on what it was like that day and then what happened subsequent to that which are the Afghanistan War and then later on the uh, the Iraq War the country is in a turmoil right now and I really wanted to give the perspective of the frontline parents who have lost and served and sacrificed so much by giving of their children to serve the nation and then paying the ultimate sacrifice I want to talk about your your son and then um, your perspective on that so I want to welcome you to the show Chris
5: thanks very much for taking the time and thank you for The idea of the show.
1: Thanks. Absolutely. My pleasure. My privilege.
5: Yesterday was such a tough day, and it's um, back in October of 2008. um, The TAPS organization, Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. Great organization. If I'd write a small, an article for them. And what I wrote was one year ago. Do you remember where you were specifically one year ago? Yeah. And at that time, my reflection was on when I was notified that Josh had been killed. But as we talked about this show, where were you on nine eleven? I know exactly where I was on nine eleven, and it's it's kind of weird. I was in a hospital bed. I had been they were trying to figure out what was wrong with me. ended up nothing they could ever find out. But I was lying in a hospital bed in Charlotte County, looking at the TV screen as it all started to unfold. Yeah. And I went, oh my, well, Josh was at Fort Bragg. He was 82nd Airborne, and I called him about, I got it through about three days later, and he said, that the world has changed. Mm-hmm. They had already locked down the bases.
1: And he would have known what was going to happen. Knew,
5: he knew no clue. He just knew his life was forever going to be different. Yeah. We didn't know that it would take a few years for that to unfold, um, but Colonel Jim can um, appreciate and even add more flavor to it. Josh went to ranger school, got his ranger tab, and they said, please stay and be a ranger instructor. Just as he got graduated from ranger school. There was something about Josh that the Army saw that he was someone who could equip and train other soldiers. And he did that for two and a half years, and he said to me, Dad, I can't stand this anymore. I'm training people to be rangers who have deployed two or three times. I've got to go. Wow. That's so always found, the
1: case.
5: Yeah. I fa- he found a unit, uh, the 1-9 out of uh, Fort Carson, wrote a transfer, took it to his commanding general, and I said, you will sign this. And <laughs> his commander goes, okay, Sergeant Hager, and signed these um, transfer and he went to join the one yeah. line. And in August or October of 06, they did the process of um, deployment. You know, they go went through Kuwait and he ended up in Ramadi in the worst of um, the fighting in the whole of the Iraq conflict um, in '06, 07 in Ramadi.
1: Yeah. yeah, and the
5: world was ever forever different.
1: Well, and how many tours did he do over there? Just one. Oh wow. He was in yeah.
5: seventy plus combat missions in ninety days.
1: Wow, yeah.
5: He was there in the prior to the beginning of what was officially called the surge. But we were told that um and comes full circle soon, Suleimani had put a bounty on his head and his his head and his colonel's head because they created an event that was kind of ground zero for the what became the surge. They rescued a bunch of women and children from a Sunni compound, killed all the bad guys, and the, the Sunni chief said, okay, I get it. You guys are for real. We'll now work with you. That started what became the surge. And Josh was killed not by an IED, but by what they call an ESP, an enhanced shaped projectile. A bomb made specifically in Iran, financed by uh, monies um, through Soleimani, and they targeted him and killed him.
1: So you must have been just beyond, you know, it it obviously wouldn't get your son back. But to know that Soleimani had been killed, you must have just been ecstatic.
5: I was not only ecstatic, but I made a couple of phone calls and I got to spend 15 minutes Holding Vice President Pence's hand as we shook hands and stood and talked quietly, and I got to say thank you. Yeah. Thank you, and please tell the president thank you. We had quite a moment. It was, um, that was just last February. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it meant a lot. But here, here's my reflection on, on this that is the most meaningful, Brooke. I always knew Josh was willing to die for his country. Oh, my God. What I realized reflecting on the years from 9-11 until 2007, it was more important he was willing to live for his country as an army ranger lives. Mm -hmm. 16-hour days. He worked a 12-hour day when it was his day off because they are always ready. There's no off time for a ranger in terms of being prepared to defend his country. Mm -hmm. And what motivates him is that he didn't hate anybody. He loved his God. He loved his family, he loved his country, and he loved freedom. All those soldiers did what they did out of what they love, not out of revenge or hatred. That's what sets us apart. That's what makes this time so remarkable, is you reflect on the love that people had when they go in. The godfather, George Carrello, is a good friend of mine. He was on the seventh floor. They went into those things because of what their love was, not because of anger or hate. Yeah. That's my memory. That's, that's my takeaway.
1: Well, and the thing, you know, one of the things, I'm a civilian, so I've never been in the military. I do have, I do have uh, family members, you know, grand, great, uh, grandfather and great aunt uh, who were in the military and served overseas during World War II. Um, but as a civilian patriot, I, I am a free woman in America because of the service and sacrifice of people like you and your family and, and that are continuing out there and really from the very beginning, you know, and including animals, by the way, you know, canine dogs, canine horses, animals, children, women, family, the whole, there has been too much sacrifice for me to be here. And I talk with you and you have sacrificed and, you know, um, we, we owe it. I owe it to to you and all of the other Gold Star families and and a thing that I always mention, you know, and I I talked about it with Matt, it's you know, it's some it's one of the things that people don't really kind of think about or want to talk about is like there are also many combat veterans who come home and they commit suicide. So they have served served many times overseas and then they come home and they lose the, they they're successful over there and then they come and lose the battle here. You know, they don't get the, the it... young
5: man the young man who was tasked to put my son's body in the body bag committed suicide. His suicide note said what he could not live with was having seen my son die. Yeah. You know, it's... His best friend died from a heroin overdose just three years ago. It keeps on giving to us. Yeah. If this condition never gets better. It gets different. Being able to share with people makes a difference, but it's never better
1: well and that's you know that's the thing we need to we need to reflect there obviously needs that need to be met now but we need to reflect and, and people need to understand there is nowhere else to go right this is the country and this is a great country Nobody discards their family members because their family members aren't perfect. And yet somehow or another, the American experience and the the American ideal is is somehow supposed to be discarded and put away because we're not perfect. There is too much service and sacrifice that has been done, too much bloodshed, too much too many injuries and everything for us to just let it be taken away. And that's why I wanted to share your story and share Colonel Jim and Captain Matt. And, and for all of the other gold star, you know, I have a a friend of mine on Facebook. She has three children. She birthed three children. She lost a son in Afghanistan. He was killed in action in Afghanistan. And two years later, her daughter committed suicide because she couldn't take the grief of her brother having been killed so she's left with one child this woman gave two children to the war you know you've seen the stories about in world war 2 some families gave all of their children to the war that we have to fight my mission as a civilian patriot who loves her country and and enjoys the you know the benefits of freedom at the at, because of the cost paid by other people is to continue to fight for this country and never forget that's why i was horrified to think that they were going to not do the the um, 9-11 ceremony and i know it was different i know that rudy giuliani was kind of upset about the way that they did i guess it was pre-recorded nonetheless it was done and we were able to honor them reflect with them and and i think i hope now that people can see from that experience and that we were just given a brighter light of understanding about what we need to do to preserve this country for to honor their service and sacrifice and to Pave the way for a free country for the generations to come.
5: If there's no memory, there's no gratitude, and without gratitude, there's no appreciation. We cannot let the memory slip away.
1: Yes, absolutely. And Chris, I want to thank you so much. God bless you and your family. Give Chris our best. Uh, give Wendy our best. I'm sorry. um and, I will do so. And God bless you and your family and all Gold Star families. Thank you so much for sharing your experience with us on the show today.
5: It's an honor and a pleasure.
1: You are listening to Brooke Talks America. I'm your host, Brooke Says, here with Colonel Jim, and as you just heard, Chris Hager. Um, We are on Salem Media Group, AM 860, The Answer, and we will be right back.
0: More Brooke Talks America, coming up. Someone had to sacrifice, risk their own to save a life. Thank you for doing what you do, what you do. Welcome back to Brooke Talks America with Brooke Says. Connect by Twitter at Talks America. Here's Brooke Says.
1: Hello, hello. Welcome back to Brooke Talks America. I'm your host, Brooke Says, here on Salem Media Group. I want to give a special thank you to Mission Barbecue, who did an amazing barbecue, uh, amazing program yesterday in Brandon. I know they do it all over the place. Uh, I want to have a special remembrance for the four lost souls of benghazi which doesn't really get that much attention uh being that 9 11 happened in new york the first one in uh in the pentagon and also a reminder of the shanksville you know to the brave souls that fought to take down that plane in the in the shanksville uh field you know um as we go forward after our contemplation of 9 11 remembering what happened uh and thinking about how unified the country was on 9 12 I think it's really important that we never forget, not only do we never forget, but that we don't sanitize the horrific brutality of that day. You know, now a lot of when you look on Google, a lot of it is about the lights that are on and the, you know, the 9-11 memorial and everything. And that's really good and important. But we need to look at those. People jumped out of buildings that day. Okay, they the buildings collapsed. People died and were horrifically murdered by people who want to take this country down. And we really need to keep that in mind, who those people are. And some of those are in our own country, by the way. Okay, we have domestic terrorism happening right now in our own country. We need to remember that we owe all of those people who have served and sacrificed, as I said multiple times, to keep fighting for our country from those who would seek to destroy it, right? And to make this a more perfect union for everyone, but not in the way of socialism, But as a constitutional republic, we need to choose freedom, not handouts, not giveaways, not it's socialism will never work. It hasn't worked anywhere else. It only leads to chaos and misery. And we owe it to those people not to let that happen. You know, I want to end the show with a moving rendition of Amazing Grace that um, the story of Amazing Grace, if you're not familiar with the background, sure, it's a beautiful song, but it's a story of sin. That was transformed by redemption, the redemption of the Lord. It is a song that was played thousands upon thousands of times at 9/11 funerals and has and for the fallen since. And I just want to invite you to share to share your 9/11. Listen to that song and reflect on what this day and what this weekend means to us. I'd like to sh- invite you to share your 9/11 story on my facebook page uh it's brook talks you can find everything on the website brooktalksamerica.com but i'd really like to hear about your story you know share your family if you've lost someone if you were in the wars anything that's related because the, the and the war still goes on you know i wish i had another two hours to talk about this we could actually talk for a whole day i'm really grateful that you've joined us to celebrate and honor our great country and what it has gone through in this horrific event and as we go forward remembering how how grateful to be for those who have served and sacrificed for your own freedom as i am for those who have served and sacrificed for mine with that i'd like to thank you for listening god bless you god bless your families god bless all who are still in harm's way abroad and of course domestically pray for our law enforcement our firefighters our troops first responders and everybody and i'd like to ask for your continued prayer for our country god bless america